Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Uh, I was sitting with my grandpa at his breakfast table years ago. I was a young boy. And I watched him reach across the table, pick up a gallon of milk, and begin to shake it. And he shook it up and down and up and down, and it was strange to me. I'd never seen my mom or dad shake a milk carton like that. So I asked them afterwards, what's going on with Grandpa and the milk? And they said, well, Grandpa doesn't realize that milk is now homogenized. And I said, oh, what's homogenized? <laughs> and they said, well, you know, years ago, you'd get your milk in a, in a glass uh, a glass jug, and the the fat in the milk would rise to the top and it would form a layer, an inch or two layer of cream. And so before you could drink it, you would have to shake it up and mix it all up. But somewhere along the line, the dairy companies figured out that people didn't like shaking up their milk every day. And so they came up with this process of homogenization that breaks up the fat globs in, in milk. And so you, you now no longer have milk and cream, all you have is milk. So homogenization comes from a word homogeneous, which means of the same kind or all alike. All alike, homogenized milk. Now, why am I telling you about milk today? Well, 35 years ago when Christ Community Church first opened its doors, there was a church growth strategy out there called the homogeneous principle. And uh, experts in church growth were saying, if you really want to grow your church fast, you, you should focus on reaching people who are just like you. You should have a homogeneous church. So white churches should reach out to white people, and black churches should reach out to black people, and Hispanic churches ought to reach out to Hispanic people. That, that's how you ought to do church, the homogeneous principle. Well, when we launched our church in, in 1984, we were a fairly homogeneous church. But it wasn't because we were following the advice of the church growth experts. It's just because we started this church in a community called St. Charles that at the time was 96% white. 96% white. And so our church merely reflected our community. But our community has been slowly changing over time in St. Charles. Now, St. Charles is still mostly white, but it's becoming more and more diverse. And then along the way, we started campuses in Streamwood and DeKalb and Aurora, uh, communities that are much more diverse than St. Charles. Well, our leadership team at Christ Community Church uh, considers diversity to be a really important value, uh, not just because of the changing complexion of our communities, but because it's a biblical value. It's a biblical value. God's people, as described in Scripture, are not a homogeneous group of people. They're dramatically diverse. And, and we believe that churches should reflect this diversity whenever possible. So today we're going to take a look at a New Testament passage that describes the importance of diversity. I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to a really easy passage to find. It's the last book in your Bible, the book of Revelation uh, chapter 5. There is an outline in your program. I would encourage you to fill it out as we go, go along, especially if you're in one of our 300 or so community groups, because this is the text 
All of our community groups, 300 or so community groups, are going to be studying together this week. Uh, typically, throughout the course of the year, groups study different stuff, but uh, occasionally we get everybody together on the same page, and that's going to happen this week. So you want to make sure that you're well prepared for that discussion. And as you're, you're looking to find uh, Revelation 5 and taking that outline out, uh, let me point out that today's sermon on diversity begins a four-part series called, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Uh, thank you, Mr. Rogers. Okay, now, diversity, what does diversity have to do with neighboring? Well, if our neighborhoods are becoming more and more diverse, as I've been saying for a few minutes now, and if God commands us to love our neighbors, in fact, Jesus says this is the second greatest commandment. In fact, this commandment is our mega goal as a church this ministry season. Christ Community Church, our big goal for the season is love your neighbor. So if neighborhoods are becoming more diverse and we're to love our neighbors, it means we got to learn how to love people who are different from us. We've got to learn how to share the good news of Jesus with people who are different from us. We've got to learn how to reach out and invite and welcome people into Christ Community Church who are different from us. I want, to, I want to give you a picture to carry in your mind throughout the course of our study today, and it's a, it's a picture of a block party, okay, in your neighborhood or at your apartment complex. And I want you to imagine for a moment that as you go to this block party, where you know, people are barbecuing and kids are playing in bounce houses. And, and you look around, and it's a diverse group of people. It's people from uh, multiple races and ethnicities and some older people and younger people and some single people and some family people and people across economic strata. See, God loves diversity. That's what we're about to see in Revelation chapter 5. So uh, let me read the text to you. Before I do, I'll give you a little historical background here. This is written by the Apostle John. Uh, John, as you might know, was Jesus' best friend during Jesus' earthly ministry. But as John writes Revelation, he's now an old man. And interestingly, he's the only one of Jesus' original group of 12 apostles who lives to old age. Everybody else has been killed violently because of their faith in Christ. Now, John is persecuted because of his faith. He's, he's not killed, but he is exiled to an island called Patmos. And so he writes uh, revelation on the Isle of Patmos after God gives him a vision, gives him a revelation of what the end of time is going to look like, how God is going to bring to a close life on this planet and how God is going to usher in a new kingdom, an eternal kingdom, a new heaven, a new earth. So, with that as the background, pick it up at verse 1 of Revelation 5. John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who's worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and his seven seals. And then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. 
he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, and each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, there are three observations I want to make from today's text. The first is this. We are redeemed at a cost. We are redeemed at a cost. Now, in order to explain this to you, I've got to give you some background. There's some, some crazy language in this passage. All right, so this is the end of time. Uh, verse 1 tells us that God is seated on his throne and he holds in his hand a scroll. What's written on the scroll? This passage doesn't tell us what's on the scroll, but as the book of Revelation unfolds, we, we come to understand that what's on the scroll is God's game plan for how he will bring this world to an end and how he will usher in a new heaven and a new earth. Th this scroll has writing on both sides, which means God has a lot to say. Okay, but the scroll is sealed. Now, in ancient times, a scroll was sealed if it was an important a document, it was rolled up, it was tied with a string, and then the only person who had the authority to open that scroll pressed his signet ring into a wax seal. Okay, he's the only one who can open the scroll. So who is this person who has the authority to open God's scroll? Well, that's exactly what an angel wants to know because he calls out in a loud voice in verse two, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Uh, unfortunately, nobody immediately steps forward. And so John, who was witnessing this scene, he began to, to weep. You know, beginning of verse 4, says that John wept and wept. In, in the original language, the word for wept here describes the most dramatic form of mourning. Now, why? Why, why is John so, so broken up? Well, if the scroll contains... God's game plan for bringing the world to an end and ushering in a new heaven and new earth, then this plan can't be set in motion as long as the scroll stays closed. You know, the story can't unfold. And that, that means that the present world, with all its sickness and death and war and poverty and injustice and, and wickedness, it's going to go on and on and on, and God's eternal kingdom will never come. But in the midst of despair, John is told to stop weeping because there is someone who has the authority to open the scroll, and that's Jesus. Now, Jesus is never mentioned by name in this passage, but it's obvious that John is describing God's son, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6. Jesus is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Uh, these are Old Testament titles that were used to describe God's coming Messiah. He would be a savior who would be as powerful as a lion, the king of the beasts. He would be a ruler who would descend from David, Israel's greatest king, most loved king. 
How else does this passage describe Jesus? Look at the middle of verse 6. John turns to look at the lion, and instead he sees a lamb. The lion is a lamb, and the, the, the lamb is on, on, on the throne of God with seven horns and seven eyes. This is obviously symbolic, figurative language. This is not a literal description of Jesus. You, you've heard me teach that though the Bible is true from cover to cover, some of it comes to us in the form of literal language. Some of it comes uh, to us in the form of poetic or figurative or symbolic language. This is very symbolic. When we see Jesus in eternity, don't expect him uh, to be sporting seven horns and seven eyes. Okay, what, what, what does this mean? What, what do these symbols depict? Well, horns in ancient times were a symbol of kingly power and majesty. And eyes, Jesus has seven eyes here because he's all-knowing, he's omniscient, he sees everything. Nothing is hidden from his gaze. And there are seven horns and seven eyes because seven is a symbolic number for perfection in the book of Revelation. There's still more description of Jesus in Revelation 5, John goes on to say that this lamb who's on, on God's throne, look at the beginning of verse 6, looks like he's been slain. It's a slaughtered lamb. And then you drop down to the middle of verse 9. Everybody in heaven is praising Jesus, worshiping Jesus for purchasing people for God with his blood. So what's going on here? What does this tell us about Jesus? Let me give it to you in, in a nutshell. The, the Bible teaches that every single member of the human race has chosen to go its own way instead of God's way. I mean, we, we disobey God on a regular basis, daily basis, sometimes in small ways, occasionally in big ways. Isaiah 53 verse 6 describes us with these words. It says, we're all like sheep who've gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Now, the trouble with disconnecting from God like this, going our way instead of God's way, what the Bible calls sinning is that God is the source of life. So when we go our way, we disconnect from life, and the consequence is death. You've heard me say this many times. We die spiritually. There's a broken relationship with God on the inside, and we are destined to die physically and eternally. But God loves us so much. John 3.16, most familiar verse in the Bible. God so loved the world that he what? Call it out. He gave his one and only son. He sent Jesus to this world. And we, we know that Jesus is God's son, that, that Jesus is deity as we read this passage because he's being worshipped, he's being sung to by all of heaven. Now, in the Bible, only God gets worship. Only God. Mere people are never worshipped. So heaven is singing to, to Jesus, the one who was sent to the planet, the one who lived a perfect life, the one who then laid down his life on the cross, a life of infinite worth so that he could pay the penalty for our sin. The penalty is death. So that he, in the, in the words of Revelation 5, so that he could purchase people for God with his blood. Now, how do you know how do you know if you're one of those people who's been purchased by Jesus' blood? Well, the Bible says if you will surrender your life to Christ, he will forgive your sins and he will give you new life, new life that begins to blossom inside and leads to eternal life. 
The wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23 says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're in Christ, if you've surrendered to Christ, the gift is eternal life. So people who surrender to Jesus have been purchased by his blood for God. Now, let's get practical here. What what does the cost of our redemption, which is Christ's blood, what, what is the cost that has been paid? What does that tell us about ourselves? At least three things. First thing it tells us is that we were hopelessly lost. We were hopelessly lost. Sometimes we like to think of ourselves as basically good people. We, we just need a little, a little bit of help, a little nudge from God to redeem us. Not so, the Bible says. We were in desperate need. We were dead spiritually, physically, eternally. It required the blood of Christ, God's eternal son, to save us from this condemnation. Some years ago, uh, my family and I hiked to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And it was a a grueling hike. And uh, before we left, the park ranger warned us, only a small percentage of people who go to the Grand Canyon actually hike to the bottom are crazy enough to do this. So we were going to hike to the bottom, camp overnight, and then hike back out the next day. And the park ranger warned us. He said, by the way, uh, we don't get anybody out. So if you break an arm, you break a leg, you got to get yourself out. The, the, The only possibility of rescue is if we have to send in a helicopter because the circumstances are so dire. And if that's the case, it's going to cost you 10 grand, $10,000. And guess what? Your insurance won't pay it. Okay, so we say, okay, we get the idea. So we hiked to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. We got to the bottom, 120 degrees at the bottom of the Grand Canyon that, that day. And we were eating our dinner, some stew across a picnic table with a couple of young women who looked like death warmed over. Uh, they were dehydrated. They had not been drinking properly on the hike. And I don't know if you know anything about dehydration, but it can lead to death. It's serious business. And so we weren't surprised when about an hour later we heard the sound of a helicopter and it landed on the, you know, the base of the Grand Canyon and these two women were medevaced out of there. $10,000. Now the cost of that evacuation was a reflection of their dire circumstances. They were gonna die. Okay, the cost of our redemption, the blood of Christ, tells us how hopelessly lost we were, what desperate condition we were in. You get it? Good, good. Second thing it tells us, the cost of our redemption, it tells us that we're dearly loved by God. John 3.16, I've already quoted, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Romans 5.8, the Apostle Paul says, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you, you want to know how much God loves you? You want to know how much God, he gave his son's life for you. That's how desperately God loves you. So the cost of our redemption, we were hopelessly lost. We were dearly loved. We are of infinite worth. That's the third thing I want to say that the cost of our redemption tells us. We are of infinite worth. Came across an interesting story in the the news last week 
Donnie Wahlberg was in town. Donnie, I guess, actually owns a house in St. Charles uh, that he occasionally visits. If you don't know who Donnie Wahlberg is, he, he was part of the band New Kids on the Block years ago, and currently he is uh, one of the stars of the hit TV series Blue Bloods. He is uh, Detective Danny Regan. And uh, one of the few shows I watch on TV. So I was really interested to see this article in USA Today, national news. How is he making national news? Well, he went to the IHOP for breakfast in St. Charles, and he left a tip behind. And it was the size of the tip that made the news. Because it was the beginning of 2020, he left his waitress a tip for $2,020. Now, I'm thinking on the one hand, this is really cool. I mean, who, lives, who leaves a tip of $2,000 after breakfast at IHOP, right? But on the other hand, the more I thought about it, I thought, but you know what? To Danny Wahlberg, this is chump change, right? I mean, his, his St. Charles home is one of multiple homes. He, he's never going to miss that $2,000. What did Jesus pay for you? He paid with his blood. He paid with something of infinite worth. You know, 1 Peter says that we were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the blood of Christ. And that tells us of our worth, friends, our infinite worth. You know, they, they, they say that something is as valuable or as, as worthwhile as what one is willing to pay for it. You know, if you pay $300 for a bottle of wine, I'm going to assume that your bottle of wine is better than the bottle of wine I got for five bucks at Trader Joe's, all right? Okay, something is as worth as what one is willing to pay for it. Jesus paid for you with his blood. See, what a foundation for self-esteem. What a foundation for self-worth. You know, where do you get your self-worth? You get it from your popularity or your good looks or your smarts or your position at work. Those are so vulnerable. Okay? Get your worth from the fact that Jesus purchased you for God with his blood. We are redeemed at a cost. We are redeemed at a cost. Number two, second observation I want to make from Revelation 5. We are redeemed with a crowd. Okay, let's go back to Revelation 5. Look at the second half of verse 9. Everyone in heaven is worshiping Jesus as they sing this song. Hear the lyrics of the song. With your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is the diversity part. Now, this verse does not say that Jesus purchases everybody because not everybody surrenders to Christ and that's what's required okay but the verse does say that Jesus purchases people from everywhere from every tribe and language and people and nation you know this this fourfold designation reminds us of that expression the four corners of the earth this fourfold designation is repeated seven times in the book of Revelation. Diversity evidently is a high priority for Jesus when it comes to redeeming people. You know, I said to you at the beginning of, of today's sermon that, that welcoming people of all races, of all ethnicities is an important value for us at Christ Community Church. You know, one of the reasons being because the communities uh, in which our four campuses exist are becoming more and more diverse. 
And so the leadership team of our church, we have been talking a lot about how we can cultivate even greater diversity and why that's such a big deal. So let, let me briefly share with you five reasons that we came up with, our leadership team, five reasons to put more emphasis on multi-ethnicity or diversity. Okay, first reason, because diversity reflects the biblical picture of God's people. And we, we see this over and over again in Scripture. Today we're looking at diversity in the last book of the Bible. I could take you to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12, where God selects Uh, Abraham and his descendants for a special mission that involves diversity. What's the mission? Well, God says to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3, that he wants him to introduce people everywhere to God. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you, God says. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, unfortunately, the Old Testament goes on to tell us that Abraham and his descendants did a a very poor job of spreading the good news about God. They kept it to to themselves. And they themselves wandered away from God, so they needed a savior. And so you keep reading in the Old Testament and you come to the, the prophets and the prophets predict the coming of this savior. But surprise, surprise, he wouldn't be a savior simply for Abraham's people. He'd be a savior for people everywhere. Isaiah chapter 49, God is speaking to his Messiah, giving his Messiah the coming Savior, his mission. So it's God the Father speaking to Jesus. In verse 6 of Isaiah 49, God says to Jesus, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob, Abraham's people. You know, I, I, I want you to save Abraham's people, but that's, yeah, that's a small deal. I got, I got bigger fish to fry here. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That's God's plan, that his salvation would extend to all people. And then we get to the New Testament and Jesus finally shows up. And at his his debut, John the Baptist looks at him and he says, John 1, verse 29, look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus eventually gives his life on the cross and he's resurrected from the dead. And before he ascends to heaven, he gathers his followers together. And he says in Matthew 28, a passage that Shadanke, our partner from West Africa, spoke on last weekend. Jesus said, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, all nations. And that's exactly what his followers do. You could read the history of the early church in the book of Acts. They went from town to town to the four corners of the then known world, spreading the good news about Jesus. And when people surrendered their lives to Christ, they were gathered into small communities called churches. And those churches were very multi-ethnic. In fact, that was a problem. They, they had to learn how to get along with each other. You read through Paul's epistles, and you know, he addresses himself to those, those problems created by their diversity. This is the picture of God's people that we get in the Bible. Second reason why diversity is such a big deal. It gives us a richer understanding of God and the Bible and church and worship and the Christian life and and so on. We have so much to learn from people who hold a different perspective from us, don't we? So when we get together as brothers and sisters in Christ and there is diversity, we have so much to learn from each other. You know, between Christmas and New Year's, Sue and I flew down to Florida uh, to hang out with her sibs who live down there, her siblings. 
And we were looking for stuff to do, and we went online, and we read about this Grambling Mansion and Plantation. So we thought we'd check it out. So we, we went, and uh, we found this amazing pre-Civil War mansion and plantation. And so we began to take the tour. The tour guide told us that this was built by Mr. Gramble, you know, who came to the area, again, before the Civil War, a bachelor, and he built it all. And then she qualified, well, actually, he didn't build it. 190 slaves built it. 190 African-American slaves carved out acre of acre of Florida swampland. 190 black slaves cut 16 miles of irrigation ditches for the sugarcane crop. 190 black slaves built this mansion that Mr. Grambling lived in, Gramble lived in, and that we took a tour through. And this began to gnaw on me through the course of the tour, and I didn't want to say anything out loud. I waited till it was over, and I took the tour guide aside, and I said, do you ever get African-Americans on this tour? And she said, oh, yes. And I said, well, you know, you've been describing this in such grandiose, amazing terms. Did they think it's grandiose and amazing? And she just got quiet. You know, different perspectives different person. When we hang out with people who come from different races, different ethnicities, especially in the body of Christ, we get a fuller view of who God is and what the Bible is saying to us and how to live the Christian life. Okay, here, here, here's a third reason uh, for the importance of diversity. Diversity increases the effectiveness of, of our evangelism. You know, I've repeatedly said today that our communities, you know, are becoming more and more diverse. You know, the largest minority by far is Hispanic, and, and then probably the second largest in the four communities that our church campuses serve is Asian and then African American. Uh, greater and greater, how will we reach everybody in our community with the good news of Jesus? Will it be more apt to happen if a church is a predominantly white and trying to do this, or if a church is diverse and reaching out? It's, a, it's an obvious answer, isn't it? It increases the effectiveness of our evangelism. A fourth reason why diversity is such a big deal for us is because it makes the church more winsome. It makes the church more winsome. I took my grandkids, uh, Charlotte, who's six years old, Winston, who's four years old. I, I took them to Shedd Aquarium. Sue and I did last Saturday. I don't know if you've been to the Shedd Aquarium recently. It is a an amazing place of every kind of fish, everything that swims in the water that, that you could imagine. In fact, many of the things just blew our imagination away. We saw transparent fish. Have you ever seen a glass catfish? You can look right through it. You, you see just the, you know, the bony skeleton, but you could look through the fish. We saw neon fish, you know, fluorescent fish that kind of lit up their tanks. We saw humongous fish. We saw itsy bitsy teeny weeny little fish that you could barely see with the naked eye. You know, it was, we were enthralled with the whole experience. Now imagine if you would that the Shedd Aquarium decides, you know, they're going to get rid of all these fish and they're going to major in trout. <laughs> they're going to have lots and lots of trout, you know, but only trout. Okay. How long would that have held the attention of my grandkids? About 10 minutes, maybe. You know, my attention, I'd been gone by eight minutes, I think. Yeah. There's something about diversity that is so winsome, even in a church, 
even in a church. You know, I've never polled my grown kids, my three adult kids and their spouses, but my guess would be if you asked them, would you, would you rather be in a church that's predominantly of one race or in a church where there's a lot of diversity? I know what they'd say. Oh, it'd be so cool to be in a church with great diversity. My guess is that most of you who are parents trying to raise your kids in this world and to figure out that there are people who are different from you and what they have to add to your life, you would also say, oh, for my kids' sake, I'd love a church with greater diversity. Here's a fifth and and a final reason we came up with as to why diversity is, is so critical for us as a church, and that's it provides a context in which we can begin to live out racial reconciliation and justice and inclusion. See, if Christ Community Church doesn't have a diverse congregation, then Pastor Clayton and I, we can preach about these things. We can preach about the importance of racial reconciliation and justice and and inclusion, but we won't be able to practice those things within the context of our church. There'll be no opportunity to do so. You know, we'll just have to send you out to your neighborhood, your workplace, you know, your friend group with with no warm-up with respect to racial reconciliation and justice and inclusion. How much better to practice these things in the context of a church with people who share a love for Jesus? Well, those are some of the reasons that our our leadership team came up with as to why diversity is so important for us to cultivate at Christ's community. Now, honestly, we got a long way to go in figuring out how to do that, how to do that more. We're working on it. You know, I'm working on it as I look at my own life. I want to see greater diversity in my friendships. We are redeemed with a crowd, and it is a diverse crowd. Here's a third lesson from Revelation chapter 5. We are redeemed for a cause. For a cause. Go back to Revelation 5. Start one last time in the middle of verse 9. With your blood, Jesus... You purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And why did you do that, Jesus? Keep reading verse 10. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. Priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. If you're a Christ follower, the Bible says you're a priest to serve God. You ever see yourself as a priest? What was the job of the Old Testament priest? Well, in, in simplest terms, the priest was a go-between, between people and God. The priest represented people to God by offering sacrifices to pay the penalty for their sin. And the priest represented God to the people by teaching people about who God is and how you can have a relationship with God. Now, those of us who are priests today because we're Christ followers, we're no longer offering sacrifices to God on behalf of people. Jesus is their sacrifice. But we are representing God to the people. We're teaching people about who God is and how to begin a relationship with God by surrendering to Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says to Christ followers, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life, light. We are redeemed for a cause. 
You know, our, our, our mission is to declare the praises of Jesus, to point people to the one who is light, who will dispel the darkness of our lives. And it begins with people in our neighborhood. You know, yes, our, our mission should also include sharing Christ with people at work and people at school and, you know, the barista at the coffee shop and uh, folks we work out with at the gym, but we can't ignore people who live on the block that we live on or in the apartment building that we live in because God put us in proximity to these people for a reason. You know, this is why we did a four-week series at the beginning of last fall, the beginning of the ministry season, you know, love your neighbor. This is why we're launching this year with this four-week series, Won't You Be My Neighbor? This is why the mega goal at Christ Community Church for the year is neighboring. This is a big deal. We're redeemed for a cause. As I wrap things up today, I'd like to quickly review the four steps to loving your neighbor that we covered last fall in our September series. You recall we said, if you're going to love your neighbor, how are you going to do that? And we gave you four verbs, meet, host, invite, serve. I want you to say those with me. Here we go. Meet, host, invite, serve. Let's do it one more time. Meet, host, invite, serve. And as I said to you in September, if you take the first letter from each of those words, it spells nothing, okay? But it's still important to remember those. You can't love your neighbors if you've never met them. Right? You, you can't share the good news of Jesus with your neighbors, with neighbors you've never even met. And so we gave you lots of suggestions for how to meet the people on your block or in your apartment building that you've never met yet. We said, you know, try collecting canned goods for the poor, for the, the local food pantry. Your neighbors will participate. It, it will give you an excuse to go to their door and meet them. We, we, we said, practice the always rule. Remember the always rule? Always stop to talk to any neighbor that's outside. Always. So you're, you're driving out of your neighborhood and you see someone coming to their mailbox, you roll down your window and you say, hey, how did the holidays go? Or happy new year, what are you looking forward to in the new year? You know, always when they're walking their dog, when they're shoveling their drive, if you see them, you stop and you say something. They always, we, we said, hey, do something over the holidays like a cookie exchange and tell your neighbors to bring a plate of cookies and you put them all out. And, you know, I got a, an email a week or so ago from a couple who don't even go to our church. In fact, they don't live in Illinois. They live in Ohio. But they have a grown daughter who attends Christ's community in St. Charles. And so they watch our sermons online. And they said, you know, we wanted to do this neighboring thing. And so before Christmas, we did a cookie exchange. We invited 13 neighbors on our cul-de-sac, and over half of them came. And they had a ball. They had a wonderful time. And afterwards, after everybody left, we collected all the leftover cookies, and we made plates, and we brought them to the people who didn't show up. And they said, we're now, we're now talking about what our next meet the neighbor, neighbor's activity is going to be. I thought to myself, I want these people to move here and join Christ Community Church. Oh, my goodness. You can't love people you've never met. So you've got to meet them. And by the way, just an aside, when you're thinking about meeting the neighbors, make a special point to reach out to those who are different from you. If you're Hispanic, reach out to a white family. If you're single, reach out to a married couple. If you're young, reach out to an elderly uh, folks in, in the neighborhood. If you're straight, reach out to a gay couple in the neighborhood. If you've got kids, reach out to somebody who doesn't have kids. You know, keep that diversity principle in mind as you're meeting. So you meet, then you host. 
Now, how many of you, I won't ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you have hosted somebody in your home since our September series? You say, well, I, you know, I just couldn't come up with an excuse. Let me tell you, there's a natural excuse this time of year. People are sick and tired of being cooped up with the weather. They've already got cabin fever. They're looking for any reason to get out. So you host something at your, your home. You host a Super Bowl party in a couple of weeks, February 2nd. You say, I'm not a football fan. Neither are 80% of the people who are going to be watching the game, right? We're commercial fans. We like to watch the commercials, okay? Okay, football's not your thing. Then host a party the following week, an Academy Awards party for people who like movies. You say, I'm not a movie fan. Okay, then host a party the following week, February 16th, a Daytona 500 party. You say, I'm not an auto racing fan. Okay, now you're just trouble, all right? Okay, you're just making up problems. But, you know, maybe, maybe you're thinking, but I'm not a party person. Okay, you don't have to be a party person. You can invite the smallest group possible you, you want. Yeah, invite a person or two over. You know, give them a call or practice the always rule. Roll down your window and say, we made such a big pot of chili for tonight, we can't eat it all ourselves. Want to come over? Dinner's at 6. Just join us for an hour. Or, you know, tell them to come over for some game. We just bought a game of sequence and we're learning how to play it and we want to play with teams and so we need one or two more people. Would you come up with a, a reason to host people? Meet, host, invite. Now invite is where your relationship begins to gain traction. There's a growing friendship and now you want to invite people in conversation to consider Jesus Christ. Okay, this is where the relationship gets, relationship gets spiritual. This is what our series, the series we're launching today, for the next three weeks, it's going to be all about how to get conversations about God going with your friends, with your neighbors. And if you want a real simple way to invite people into this conversation, bring them to church with you. You know, less than a month away, we've got our next Inspiring Stories weekend with Scott Hamilton, who's won over 70 medals as a figure skater pretty famous guy and also has a heart-wrenching story to tell about how he, he got led into a relationship with Christ. Plan now, invite now somebody to come with you to inspiring stories. So meet, host, invite. Lastly, serve. You start to look for ways to serve your neighbors. You know that couple down the street that's got preschoolers and hasn't had a night out in months. You volunteer. Can we give you some free child care so you guys can go out? Hey, you look for ways to serve. Uh, snow shoveling season, I'm, I'm sorry to say, snow blowing season, it's upon us. You, you, you look for a way to help somebody clear their driveway. You hear about someone in the neighborhood who's gone into the hospital and you go for a visit. You serve your neighbors. Just a little twist on this and then I'll close. Consider an opportunity we're giving you, not just to serve your neighbors, but to serve with your neighbors. This is a great way to really get to know your neighbors, serve alongside of them. So at the end of February, we're going to be packing 750,000 meals for Feed My Starving Children. Now, there's no way you pack three quarters of a million meals without thousands of people participating. And so you invite your neighbors to join you. You sign up for one of those two-hour slots. The last couple of times we've done Feed My Starving Children, Sue and I have invited our neighbors. We've had over a dozen neighbors each time. It's a natural. 
You know, Boy Scout troops are working with Feed My Starving Children. Uh, companies are working with Feed My Starving Children. You can work alongside your neighbors for a two-hour slot and get to know them better. And I want to close with this. Okay, in order to pay for those 750,000 meals, we had to raise the money. It was going to cost us a quarter of a million dollars to pay for the meals. So in the month of December, we had a year-end gift, you know, a fundraiser going on. We were trying to raise money, uh, $250,000. And then on top of it, we said to you, yeah, and we've also got some local partners that we work with, crisis pregnancy centers and uh, at-risk kids programs and things. We'd like to raise an equal amount, $250,000 for our partners. So $500,000, and we haven't told you how we did yet. So we didn't come up with $500,000. We came up with $756,000. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yeah. Three quarters of a million dollars was given. If you participated, I, I hope there's a surge of joy going through you right now. You see what you contributed to. If you didn't participate, I hope that soon you'll learn the joy of giving because it's what the Christian life is all about and your relationship with Jesus will take off once you become a giver. So I was told after last night's service, I was told that because we came up with so much money. We're not going to stop at three quarters of a million meals. We're going to go for a full even million meals. But that means we're going to need the help of your neighbors to do it. So reach out. Re invite somebody now. You could go online and you could see how we're signing people up and sign up for a clump of neighbors and get them to come with you and, uh, and pack these meals. Now, let me close in prayer and then we're going to, uh, we're going to sing a final song. We're going to collect our, our gifts for the day. Let me just remind you, if you're in a community group, you're going to be talking about this topic this week, about diversity, about reaching people in your neighborhood with the good news of Christ. And uh, to all our campuses, I say, hey, we want to see you tonight at the St. Charles campus at six o'clock for a night of worship. We're going to blow the, the roof off the place. We're going to glorify Jesus in the same way that he was getting worshiped in Revelation 5, okay? and it's going to fill your spirit and start your week out gloriously. Let me pray. Uh, Lord God, thank you for what you're doing in our church. Thank you for the opportunity we have to become a, a multi-ethnic, diverse place where we're learning from people who are different from us in the kaleidoscopic a body of Christ in all its glory is being built at our four campuses. Uh, God, give us a heart that moves in that direction, we pray in Jesus' name.